We're going to start a new study this morning in the uh, the epistle, the letter to the Hebrews. And this morning, what I'd like to do is uh, kind of an introduction to the book and to look at something um, very specific, uh, a theme that we see developed throughout the book. And I think it's very helpful at this stage to to have a look at this before we start getting into the the, the text and the the verse by verse study, which we're going to enjoy over the coming weeks. Uh, it really is an incredible book, and, and, and I'm sure most of you are aware there's all sorts of uh, controversy about the book in terms of who wrote the book and where was it written and who was it written to and, and so on. And there's all sorts of great uh, articles and commentaries written about these things, and we're not going to dwell too much uh, about that. We'll have a look a little bit more uh, next week about some of those things. Um, but in one sense, the fact that it doesn't have an author, it doesn't have a, uh, a specific location, there's not a church that this book is addressed to, I, I think is quite interesting for us because in one sense, we can see, therefore, that it's addressed to each one of us. Um, you know, and really, this, regardless of the author in the flesh, this is from God. And it's every one of us. And you'll see this morning, I think, how applicable this book is. And I'm really, I kind of get excited whenever we start a new book. But I'm really excited about this book because of, I think, all that we're going to see through this. And the theme that we're going to see developing, the underlying theme through this book. Just a brief bit of background to this book. The church in Jerusalem, at the time of the writing of this book, uh, had already lost Stephen. Part of that initial wave of persecution that just grew and grew. James the Apostle, we find in Acts 12, also had been martyred. And then others are recorded in the book of Acts also. You know, and then started that, that persecution started spreading out. The church in Galatia also started facing persecution. Uh, read about that in the beginning of the book of Galatians. You know, and principally that persecution was coming from the legalistic Jews. Uh, and they saw Christianity as a rejection of the law of Moses. And of course, therefore, it was something that they, they needed to stand up against and fight against. Uh, and so we see this, this really intense attack on any that were naming the name of Christ, that were following the way. Of course, it wasn't called Christianity to start with. The title we have in the book of Acts was the way. That's what it was simply called. Anybody that followed Jesus, that believed in the things that he said, that believed in the resurrection, at least... Again, we talk about believing in the resurrection. For for that generation, it wasn't a do you believe in it. It it was so well attested to. It was a case of what do you do with it? Not did it happen, but yes, it happened. What do we do with the resurrection of Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus really was and is God manifest in the flesh? And these were the questions in the first uh, few hundred years of the church. But of course the temptation at this time, and part of the idea behind this book was that there was a temptation to revert to Judaism. So to avoid the persecution, it's so easy just to go back and, and follow after the things that, that have been laid down and taught for centuries, of course in the Torah and the Tanakh, the Old Testament as we have it. You know, and for many of the Jews that became Christians, you know, they, they accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they believed that he was the one who was going to deliver Israel. Because that's what they believed the Messiah was to do. But then they were faced with this challenge for them of, okay, so what about the law? And as Paul deals with in the, the book of Galatians, that actually Christ was a, or sorry, the, uh, yeah, uh, um, the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And so for, for many Jews, as they started to follow, it was obvious to them that Jesus was the Messiah. But then they're faced with this challenge about, well, what about the law? What do we do with all that we've known, all that we've learned? And again, the, the book of Galatians is really the, the key to that. What are the objectives? Well, firstly then, to combat that possible apostasy. Those that were fearful of giving up the law, laying it aside. Maybe returning to Judaism as it was. It was encouraged them to, to press on to spiritual maturity. And also to comfort them in the persecutions that they were going through. Now it's interesting if you look at all the, the books that we have in the New Testament, we have three letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and to Hebrews here. All that 
hinge themselves in a sense on this scripture from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The scripture, which I'm sure many are familiar, the just shall live by faith. Of course, it was that scripture that Martin Luther kind of latched onto and in a sense became the touchstone for the Reformation. Simply that the, the just are those that shall be justified. Don't live by works. Don't live by our effort. Don't live by that which we can do or trying to keep a law. But we live by faith. And you see this, this, this underlying theme. And it's interesting that the book of Romans and the Galatians and of course Hebrews here deal with this issue of, okay, what about the law? Where does the law fit in? It's so applicable to, to these believers to whom this was written to initially. But there's many things here we'll see for us as well. The book of Romans deals with the just. Who are the just? What does it take to be justified, to be made right with God? What's the requirement? And in the book of Galatians, it really deals with that living. Okay, how are we to live then? And the answer is that we're to live by grace, not by works. And then, of course, by the time we get to Hebrews, it's all about faith. And that is how we live. It's by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's how we're to live. And, and these three books form this trilogy, uh, again, just built around this scripture. Uh, and it does suggest, of course, that we have a common author. Um, and again, we'll, we'll look at some of those things next week, but uh, I don't want to really labor that point because it's really not the key. The key is understanding that this is God's word to us. Uh, and some people can get so sidetracked by some of those other Things that really don't add an awful lot of value. <clears throat> if we look at the layout of this book, what we're going to see is that Jesus is presented initially as a new and better deliverer. Uh, and we're going to get a number of comparisons drawn for us. Firstly, Jesus, the, the God-man, God-made flesh, being better than the angels. We'll, we'll begin, we'll look at this next week as we really get into the text and we'll draw things out from that. That Jesus was given this position, given this authority, given this inheritance greater than any of the angels. And we're going to see that comparison with Moses. That We're told that he was an apostle better than Moses. Of course, again, thinking of the law and the way that the Jews would have understood the law, this is such an important breakdown to help them see that Jesus was also a leader better than Joshua. He was a priest better than Aaron. He was actually a priest, we're talking in chapter 7 of Hebrews, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This interesting character that we read about who was a king and priest in Jerusalem, predating the Aaronic priesthood, predating the Levites. This character, again, a king and priest in Jerusalem. And we'll look at some of the detail when we get there. But seemingly reigned for, there was a, a, a period of time where there were kings and priests in Jerusalem that reigned for about a thousand years in the time shortly after the flood. And we'll look at that again uh, in more detail when we get there. Fascinating when you think, of course, the millennium and you think that we are again going to have Jesus, the king and the priest, who will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Then we go on to this comparison with Calvary, Mount Moriah, as we also know it, compared to Jabal al-Laws or the mountain of the law in Sinai. Not Sinai as in on the map, but in Sinai as in Scripture, which is where, as we know today, is Saudi Arabia. And the, that which was given at Calvary was a new and a better covenant, a better sanctuary, a better sacrifice. And then we go on to get these practical applications. The Hall of Faith in chapter 11, we'll have some fun when we get there. It's just an incredible chapter. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that already. And then those last few chapters, that exaltation to endure. So, so important. And I want you to understand that this is a real letter of encouragement. The whole basis of this is all about um, leading us on to maturity in our walk with God. But what I want you to see and what we're going to look at this morning is that throughout the book there are five warnings given. And I want to go through these as a brief summary because it helps to set the tone for the entire study. The first warning is a warning about drifting. The second one 
a warning about disobedience. The third is a warning of a failure to mature as a Christian, to grow. The fourth is a warning about willful sin. And the fifth is a warning about indifference. And you'll see that there's a progression there. Each of these things we see going on. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that Adrian said to me a little while ago was he'd like to do a study uh, in the book of Jonah. Um, I think we're going to start that with the the men uh, shortly in the year. It's interesting because you could look at that list and you can actually map the book of Jonah over that. Uh, As with any portion of scripture, you'll find it's, it's kind of interwoven with so many other portions of scripture. But, you know, there's so much there that, that speaks of the whole life of Jonah, the, the testimony he had up until that point, of course, that he repents and he's brought up out of the ocean. Um, but interesting parallels we see. And, and we could probably look at a number of other portions of Scripture. We could look at a number of the kings of Israel. And we can see, again, kings that went from drifting, slightly, of course, who went to disobedience. They failed to mature they ended up sinning willfully and then they got to the point where they were indifferent. And there's a real danger there. And this is a, this underlying theme that goes through this book. So I just want to go through these just to point out that great loss awaits those who fail to persevere. It's a loss of reward and honor in Christ's coming millennial kingdom. One of the things I want to say right at the start is we're not talking about losing your salvation. We'll go on and we'll, we'll, we'll cover these things in detail as we go through the book. But you'll see the theme, you'll see the idea, and it makes it very clear when you look at the context of all of this. There are some challenging portions in the book of Hebrews. But actually, when you look at the big picture, it's very clear to see the intent of the author and the, the message that's coming across. So let's, uh, let's start with the first of these. Number one, the danger of drifting. Well, we're told in chapter 2, the first four verses, that we must give earnest heed to the things which we have heard. And we're told specifically, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, that, there's a real significance there, because it's not, it's not saying that, you know, this is a once-only thing. We get our Christian life sorted, and that's it, we're fine, we're off we go. No, this is saying at any time we could slip. So these are things we need to be continually aware of. And I think this is so apt as we go into a new year. This is almost like an MOT for us this morning. It's like a health check. Where are we in regard to these things? And of course, the writer to the Hebrews was writing to encourage them. If they were off track, to get them back on track. You know, we mustn't get complacent. And it's so easy, isn't it, to get complacent? Have you ever been challenged somewhat when you meet a new believer and you see the exuberance, the excitement they have, just the love for the Lord? And sometimes you then look introspectively at your own life and you think, where is the joy of my salvation gone? David prayed something very similar. You know, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You know, our lifestyle matters. The way that we live our lives. You know, we mustn't get complacent as believers. Our devotional life matters. You know, what does your devotional life look like? How much time do you spend with the Lord on a weekly basis? Or let's talk about a daily basis. Do we put time aside every day? You know, notice this scripture again. We must give earnest heed to things we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The idea is that there's a real danger of, of drifting, of going off course. So we constantly need to be checking and rechecking. You know, our, our prayer life matters. As we go into a new year, how much time do we spend in prayer? You know, it's not necessarily that you need to spend hours and hours in prayer. And if you have the opportunity and you can do that, then that's great. I think it was also Chambers that said that he doesn't pray for an hour at a time, but he never lets an hour go by without praying. I think there's something very 
sensible in that. But it is good to spend time with the Lord, not just to pray for things. In our study a little while ago, we were talking about prayer at our 101 session, just looking at some of the basics, some of the foundational things. And, you know, one of the big issues or the big things about prayer is it's a a communication with God. It's us talking to him and allowing him to speak back to us. It's not just going to go with a shopping list of what we want and then walking out the door and thinking, well, that's done. All these things, our lifestyle, our devotional life, our prayer life matter. And of course, our time in his word matter. How much time do we spend in God's word? You know, it's been said many times, and there's so many examples. Uh, if you Google it, you, you'll find loads. I looked at some last night, and I could have put loads of quotes in, and I just I, I wasn't, didn't bother doing it. But if you want to, go have a look. Uh, yeah, if you're just one degree off, Imagine you were on an ocean, on a boat, and you're one degree off. By the time you get to your destination, you won't get to your destination. You'll be so far away from it. Just a little bit can have a profound effect. That's why all those things that we just mentioned, our prayer life, our devotional life, our, our time in God's Word, they all matter. And we need to take them seriously. But also our attitude to forgiveness matters you know i've seen over the years christians that have been so wrapped up in bitterness because of things that have happened that they've been unwilling to let go i was um listening to something on youtube last night a christian speaker and as youtube tends to do an advert popped up um for um, people with arthritis and saying that uh, this chap was saying that you know uh, he's just changed his diet and he, he's, he's so much better now he's just removed a few things from his diet um, and his arthritis problems have kind of almost disappeared now and so on you know, it's interesting that from a health point of view we know that our diet has an impact on our health but what about our spiritual diet that has an impact on our health too on our spiritual health it's far more important but what about our attitude to our spouse? That matters also. Or our attitude to other believers, those in the congregation, to our families, to those around us. You know, we can't just say, well, that, that doesn't matter. I'm not going to worry too much about that. You know, we, we, we serve a God who sees, who knows everything. And our attitude towards the unsaved matters. There's a song by a Christian artist called Steve Camp. And on the line it says, don't tell them Jesus loves them until you're willing to love them too. Quite poignant. You know, we, we talk about wanting to see the, the lost saved, but are we prepared to, to show them the love that Jesus would show them? We're told very clearly in scripture that God is not mocked it's a very simple principle you know that we reap what we sow you know and our vocabulary matters because every one of these things has the dangers the potential to just pull us off track just a little the things that we say you know we're warned in scripture about coarse jesting joking and things like that and various other things that that can start to affect the way we think and what we accept as being acceptable. But who we spend time with matters as well. You know, the things that we allow to influence us, the things that we spend our time doing, all these things matter. You know, the writer of the Hebrews is saying that we must give earnest heed to the things that we've heard, the things that have been passed down, that we've heard from Scripture. We must... Hold on to those things, listen to them, lest at any time we should let them slip. And all these other things are things that can cause those things that we've heard and learned to slip. Our attitude towards spiritual things matter. You know, how do you feel at the, the prospect of prayer meetings and Bible studies? You know, for, for many believers, they're kind of like, oh, I don't really want to go to the prayer meeting, or I don't really want to go to the Bible study. 
I hope and pray that's not how you feel. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't have difficult days, hard days, and you get home and you just want to switch off. But there's something wonderful about spending time with other believers. It's like being plugged back into the mains again. It's like being recharged. We're all familiar with our mobile phones and how we have to put them on charge. If you don't put it on charge at night in the morning, what are you going to do? But, but spiritually, we need to do the same. We need to be constantly charging ourselves up. You know, and our love for his word matters. How much do you love God's word? You know, I know a lot of believers that say they love God's word, but, you know, they're not that worried about details and things like that. And translations don't matter really, does it? Well, what are we reading in Psalms? That God has exalted his word above his name? Well, it matters to God. How much do we love his word? Do we care about the details? Do we care about getting things right? Are we more intent on sticking with the things that we've learned traditionally or from history or from other people rather than being willing to be humble before God's word? And if God reveals things that maybe require a change in our thinking, are we prepared for that? Are we willing for that? What matters more to us, our opinion or God's? One of the challenges that the writer of the Hebrews brings is that if there was a judgment on those who failed to follow the law that had been given by angels to Moses, then how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What a challenge. You know, the law was given. It was given by angels, but we've been given something even better, even greater, and it's come from a greater source. You know, let me just ask you this. Do you think you can get away with living a nominal Christian life? I hope and pray that everyone here this morning would immediately reject and say, no, I don't want to live a a nominal Christian life. I want to be somebody that is walking with the Lord and growing. Let me just ask you this, though. Do you think that God is okay with your offering? You know, think what God expected of Israel. You've only got to read through Numbers is a great example of Leviticus also, but Numbers, you know, read through and see what God did with those that brought offerings that weren't acceptable. And that was only temporary things. What about our offering to God? Now, I'm not talking about works versus salvation. All of this is dealing with people who are saved. We can't add to our salvation, make it very clear. We can't accomplish it, we can't earn it, we don't deserve it. It's all a free gift of grace. But once we're saved, what does our offering look like? Is that which we give God of our lives pleasing to him? Is it what you think he deserves? Does God get your time and your attention and your devotion? Neglect. That word that we have there, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It just means to make light of, you know, or to treat it as if it costs little. You know, do we or have we or are we in a place where we've become a little complacent? And we've got to the point of thinking that, even subconsciously, that, well, we've been saved, we're okay. Do we forget how much it cost the Father to send his Son? Remember Jesus in the garden, sweating those drops of blood. Not because of the cross. He he knew that was coming. He knew what the Romans were going to do. But it was because of the wrath of God that was going to fall upon him. As uh, I believe it was Paul that said, wasn't it? That none of us have resisted to the point of shedding blood. None of us have got to the point of being so under duress, that we sweat blood. How much do we value what Christ has done for us? And if we do value it, what are we prepared to do? What are we putting in place so that we don't drift? 
Let me just ask you this question. Does your Christian life reflect the fact that God gave his only begotten son to die on a cross so that you might have life? Does your life reflect that? Now, if this morning you're sitting here feeling condemned, let me just remind you of a comment of a Spurgeon once. That a lady went up to him after the ser- a service and Spurgeon had been speaking quite firmly about relationship with the Lord and growing as a, as a believer. And this lady said, up, went up to Spurgeon apparently and said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, he said this morning, she said, your words wounded me. And he went, Oh, my dear lady, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to wound you. I meant to slay you. <laughs> it's typical Spurgeon. Look, if you're in a position this morning that you're feeling, okay, maybe things are not where they should be. Maybe my walk with the Lord is not where it should be right now. Well, look, praise God that he's given us this opportunity to go through this book together. Because the purpose of this book is to get us back on track. It's to get us into a place where we're growing. And not just growing, but being blessed abundantly in our walk with the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Are you closer to Jesus going into 2020 than you were when we went into 2019? Interesting thought, isn't it? Am I closer to Jesus now than I was this time last year? Again, have you drifted? Have we drifted? You know, we need to be willing to to face up to these things. Yeah, and this isn't a, a sermon of condemnation. This is a sermon of encouragement because the writer to the Hebrews is writing to them saying, look, you might be there. But we can get back on track. We'll see as we go through some other things. The second warning is the danger of disobedience. And it kind of follows on in the sense. In chapter 3 um, through to chapter 4, verse 13, uh, we, we see this played out in this, this letter to the Hebrews. But Israel failed to enter the promised land. We're familiar with the history, of course. Uh, you know, they get to Kadesh Barnea. They send in the, the 12 spies. Only Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can go and do this. We trust God. The others, the other ten through fear and unbelief didn't go in. They, they missed out on God's best because they didn't trust God. They were kind of looking at the actual things, the real things that were around them. You know, I, I love that Oswald Chambers has a kind of a, a quote. It's one of the things in My Atmosphere is Highest. And he speaks about when Peter walked out on the water to Jesus. And he said all the time that Peter's looking at Jesus, he's fine, he's walking on the water. And suddenly he begins to reckon with the actual things, that the waves were actually boisterous. The wind really was blowing. There was a storm on the sea. And suddenly Peter starts to look at the, the things around him. And he sinks immediately. But you know, so many of us look at the things around us. We look at our, our jobs, our careers, our families, or all sorts of other things. And they become the thing we have to spend our time thinking about. We have to deal with those things, solve those problems first. And it's funny enough, we don't ever have time left for God at the end of the day. They failed to enter into the rest that God had because they trusted their own wisdom. Let me remind you, these were God's people whom he'd led out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They'd seen what God can do. But let's just spin that around because we've seen what God can do. Because Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. And he promises to fill us with that power that we can walk with him. That we can walk and be overcomers. You know, that generation all ended up striving rather than resting. You know, the disobedience wasn't necessarily something that was calculated. They didn't intend to be disobedient. It just came through a lack of trust. How many of us are striving today because we're not really trusting God? There's an antidote for disobedience in Scripture. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 14, we read this, "...but we are made partakers of Christ." If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, what does that mean? Well, this word partakers is interesting. It's this word in the Greek, methikoi. It's one who shares in or a companion, a comrade, a partner. That's the idea. That we are made partners 
with Christ, companions with him. As old if, notice this, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The word partaker means to be a participant in something. So partaking of Christ's life means not only receiving his life in our spirits, that we have done when we're saved, but also living that life out in our souls. Partaking of his life is what leads us to overcoming. See, this is the antidote to to disobedience. It's Christ's overcoming life that we are to live out, to work out what he's put in. It's his love, his wisdom, his power, and we're simply partaking of it. So being a partaker in Christ, that's salvation, justification, is not the same thing as being a partaker of Christ. That's sanctification, that work of being set apart for him. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to believers who have not only received Christ's life at their new birth, but are now living that life. We've celebrated this morning the communion. We've spoken about the, the, the blood of Christ, that blood that speaks of life. But are we really living that life? See, God's purpose here is for the exchange life or being a partaker so that we might produce fruit. This is again what God is looking for. And again, fruit is that which is produced by the Spirit of God through us. It's the the fruit of righteousness. It's what we're talking in Ephesians 5 and Philippians 1 and so on. But without that continual co-death, willing to die to ourselves, to lay aside our own wisdom, lay aside our own sense of our rights to ourselves, there's not going to be any fruit. In fact, the reverse is actually true. The failure to partake actually leads to disobedience. John 15 verses 4 and 5 tell us it's only if we abide in him that that fruit will result. Fruit is the result of partaking of Christ's life. You know, when we put Christ first, when we do all those things that we were looking at to start with, when our devotional life is right, when our prayer life is right, when we are... Loving our spouses as we should do as Christ. For men as Christ left the church. And of course women are your own responsibility in the relationship. You know when we are seeking God with our whole heart. With our whole mind. With our strength. Well then there's going to be fruit that's going to come of that. You know, you can only serve one master. And if you're serving the world, if you're serving the things of the world, then you cannot be serving Christ at the same time. Well, the third danger then, which again leads on from this, is the danger of not maturing. Yet we should be going on to perfection. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 5. It's a particular portion of scripture I love very much, and we'll unpack it more when we get there. We shouldn't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We should be progressing from milk to solid food, just as a baby does. But the real danger is that if we do not, sorry, the real danger if we do not is that we might fall away or deviate from the right path. That's what the writer tries to communicate here. And we can lose the precious gift of repentance. This is a really scary thing. Again, let me underline, we're not talking about salvation. But we can lose the gift of repentance. And literally, our consciences can become seared. They can become past feeling if we don't mature. You know, it's possible as a believer to get to a place where sin no longer makes us grieve. What a horrible place to be. To be in a place where We're trying to worship and serve a God who can't entertain sin in his presence. And yet we look around and things around us in this world, well, it's not that bad. Or we look at things in our own life and we think, well, that's, it's not that bad. You know, other people got bigger issues than that. Yeah, we'll try and justify it whichever way we can, but this portion 
Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, we'll, again, we'll deal with it in detail when we get there. But is this for, is it possible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance? Notice that the sentence here, or the, the statement is, to renew them to repentance. Repentance is an incredible gift. I can't, I can't overemphasize how important a gift it is that God gives you the ability to repent. But what a horrible thing it is when you come to a place where you no longer feel the need to repent. And it says, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. What is at stake here? Well, what are these believers going to lose, forfeit, or suffer? It's not salvation. Again, we'll deal with this very clearly when we go through. Many scriptures make that clear, abundantly clear. The issue is one of rewards, the judgment seat of Christ, the beam and seat of Christ. Well, we'll receive that which we've done in the body. 1 Corinthians 3 is an important scripture to understand that. You know, we can't escape by trying to apply this to others and so on. You know, the burden of the book of Hebrews is this. It's not rescuing sinners from hell, but the bringing of sons to glory. You know, once you understand that, a lot of the challenges in this book disappear. Because if you try and look at it as a kind of an evangelistic, you know, book, it's not that. It's dealing with people who are already saved, believers. And the purpose, and we'll look at this in the text itself, is about bringing sons to glory. That's the purpose of this. That's why this, to me, is a great place to start a new year. Because that's what God wants for each one of us. And we may not even understand what that means yet, bringing sons to glory, bringing us to glory. What what is God trying to accomplish? Well, we're going to go through, we're going to enjoy and see these things. But that's the objective. It's not that we become hardened. It's not that we become cold. It's not that we become so familiar with sin in our lives that we just accept it and tolerate it. The fourth warning is that of willful sin. Yeah, and the danger is that if we drift, if we fail to bear fruit, if we refuse to mature, just as it was for Cain, sin lies at the door. You know, our hardened hearts were already prone to sinning. And we don't need any encouragement. We don't need to give any help to the flesh in regard to sinning. And the danger is if we devalue the blood of Christ, treat his sacrificial death for us as a trivial thing, if we come and like we've done this morning, celebrate communion, but then tomorrow we're back out into the world and you know we're happy to do this, that, the other, and you can fill in the blanks. You know your own heart's better than I know, and I know my heart better than you're ever going to know it. You know, if we can just try and push things to one side and we kind of compartmentalize our lives and Sundays we're fine, we can come, we can worship the Lord, we can raise our hands, but then Mondays, there was a song by Hillsong called Believe some years ago and the lyrics went along the line, something about, uh, I say on Sunday how much I want revival, but then on Monday I can't even find my Bible. It's just, you know, it's true for so many believers. You know, again, the way we live is evidence of those things, whether it's true in our lives or not, whether we really believe what we profess on a Sunday. You know, and again, there is no plan B. There's no other way to be restored to a right relationship with God. It is through the blood of Christ. That's it. And if we've come to the place of not really valuing it, not coming on a Sunday and celebrating communion and feeling some sort of pull in our hearts, well, this is why Paul says that we should examine ourselves. Every time we celebrate communion, it should be a spiritual health check for us. Do we still hate sin? And do we hate sin more now than we did last week or last month or last year? The scripture we looked at earlier from John chapter uh, 6. Unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life within you. Yeah, and unless you're willing consciously and repeatedly to be identified with the blood of Christ, his resurrection power will have no impact in your life. You see, Paul wanted to know Christ crucified. He wanted to be conformed unto his death, to know the power of his resurrection. You know, we're not going to know the power of his resurrection 
if we don't have respect unto the blood that was shed for us. In Deuteronomy, God made it very clear that he would judge his people. Oh, the world's one thing, and God will judge the world, no question. But God also will judge his people. And we're told it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, you only need to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, let's just very quickly do that. Because it's such a poignant scripture to remind us. It speaks of that moment when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we read this. For no other foundation can be laid than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. It should be clear. The way we've lived our lives is going to be laid out. It's going to be clear. Because for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You know, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, they'll be tried by fire. They'll be purified. That's what happens when you put a precious metal or a stone in the fire, it purifies it. It burns away all the impurities. But if it's wood, hay, and straw, if it's the things of this world, if you've sown to the flesh, well, then it's going to be burnt up. And we were told, if any man's work abide which he is built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, look at this, he shall suffer loss. This is somebody standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. And we're told that that individual, if they've sown to the flesh, if they're victim of these things that we're looking at, if they've allowed their lives to, to become cold spiritually, he shall suffer loss. But notice, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. We can't trivialize these things. And so often we tend to gloss over the fact that, yeah, we're saved, we're going to heaven, it's great, wonderful. And of course, that's true. But we're told we should be looking for an abundant entrance. That's what John says. An abundant entrance into heaven. Not just, in a sense, nipping in through the back door. It's a bad analogy because you could never speak of salvation in that sense. But I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. We should be wanting to walk into heaven with those gates wide open. Looking into the eyes of Jesus with our arms outstretched, with our heads lifted high, not with our heads bowed in shame. The final warning is one of indifference. And this is scary. This is really frightening. That any one of us could be in a place where we become indifferent to the things of God. Where we just go through the motions. You know, and I've seen Christians in churches that are just like this, that they've kind of got used to every Sunday they go to church and they sing songs and then, you know, they say the right things and they greet people and, you know, and then the rest of the week, God doesn't feature in their lives. And they're kind of trapped in it. They can't leave church because everyone would say, (gasps) and so they just kind of go through the motions, but they've become indifferent to it. Well, I hope and pray that we never get there. But you know, even if you find yourself there, this isn't the end of the line. This book is written to get us all back on track. Again, Hebrews 12, we're told that we should consider who it is that speaks to you. Israel did suffer for not listening to Moses. And at that time, the earth did shake. And we're told again, we'll read this in Hebrews later, that there's going to be another shaking, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Well, that's good, you know, we all could do with a shaking like that from time to time. You know, we all need to be shaken so that the things that are of this world, that are not eternal, all start to fall away. And that that which is left is that which God has worked. That's what we need. You know, let us have grace whereby we, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Oh, what a great summary to all these things we've been saying. Again, 
We're also told that God is a consuming fire. We've seen that already in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, again, all these five warnings are a unit. They go together. They complement each other. They build on each other as they go through, and they intensify until you get to that kind of fifth capstone, as it were. And the writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as we go through the book as an example or a type of individual Christians. Remember that exodus generation, they were redeemed people. They were saved from Egypt, but they failed to heed God's instructions. But sadly, many of them were judged. They were disinherited for their disobedience. Again, the danger of drifting. Well, the stragglers for Israel got picked off. Again, it's that, how can you escape? Each one of us is responsible. We're told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That danger of disobedience, again, they didn't enter his rest and they ended up continually striving because they didn't trust God. More concerned about the things they could see with their eyes. That danger of failing to mature and the, the real risk of losing that gift of repentance. Becoming numb to sin and then running that risk of forfeiting the rewards. The the treasure that we've already put in heaven. Of course, that can lead then to willful sin. Of course, we're told that God is not mocked and we will reap what we sow. There's many examples in Scripture. We'll look at some of these things in detail when we get there. Ananias and Sapphira are a classic example in Acts chapter 5. And then, of course, leading to indifference. And the real danger that you can actually forfeit your inheritance. Yeah, you, you remember the prodigal son? You want another example? He, he never stopped being a son. In that sense, he didn't lose his salvation or his connection to his father. He didn't lose that, but he lost his inheritance. And there's a warning here it's not just about now, this is about eternity. Again, all these things are written to believers. Again, we're saying that it's not speaking of losing salvation or anything like that. We've made it clear, we've looked already and talked about the eternal security of the believer and we'll talk more as we go through. Because it's based upon Christ, it's not based upon us. If it was based upon us, we'd all be in trouble. Now our salvation is based upon the completed work of Christ. But the warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God has promised to the faithful overcomer. You know, these warnings represent a very real possibility of the loss of privilege or rewards offered to the believer, again, that are going to be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, and I feel I have a duty as a pastor to bring these things to you, to share them with you, to challenge you. you know, wherever you are in your walk this morning with the Lord, I believe as we go through this study, we can all draw closer to him. Whatever has happened so far, whatever we've allowed in that we shouldn't, whatever things we've tolerated that we shouldn't have done, time to put those things to one side. One of the great scriptures from Hebrews that we all know so well is that we should be looking unto Jesus. You know, that, that sin does so easily instead. It does. And, and this isn't, and as I said already, this is not intended this morning to be in any way a kind of condemnation. But this is like pressing reset for all of us. Because we all have things in our life that we need to bring to the cross. To bring to Jesus and say, I don't want that there anymore. You know, it's that old question that was once asked, you know, if you're not willing this morning to be changed, are you willing to be made willing? Yeah, I just think it's an incredible statement of grace that the Lord is allowing us to start this year in this place that we can get closer to him. And, you know... For a long time I've, I've believed and I've felt that as we get closer and closer to the rapture, we're going to see two things. One, 
exactly what we're told in Matthew 13, that the wicked, the sinful, the unbelieving are going to be gathered together in bundles, but that the bride of Christ is going to be purified. One of the things we see with a Jewish wedding is that a bride in preparation for her wedding day goes through the the mikvah, the, the ritual bath, accompanied by a, a chaperone to help her clean herself, to get rid of nail polish, to get rid of anything that's man-made or whatever, so that she can then prepare herself for a wedding day. Well, the beautiful picture is that we've been given the Holy Spirit. And he wants to do that work in us, to prepare us for our wedding day. You know, that's how we're to be presented to Christ. I mean, Paul says, doesn't he, that we should be like a chaste virgin. Just beautiful, pure, without sin, washed by the water of his word. That's where we're going to be going over the next however many weeks the Lord allows. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning just to look at these things. Father, I think I can pray on behalf of all of us and Lord, I hope I can and if I can't, then stir those hearts that are not yet willing. But Lord, I pray that you would make us into the people that you want us to be for your glory. The Lord, that there would be no hardness in our hearts. That there would be no unwillingness to allow your spirit to move. And over the coming weeks, Lord, transform us, we pray. Oh, Father, we would love to see this place filled with new faces, with new people coming to know you as Lord and Savior. Oh, but Lord, we also know that you need to do a work in us. And so, Father, I ask for me, I ask for this congregation that you do that work. You transform us by the renewing of our minds. Lord, let the old things truly be passed away. Let us live that new life with our resurrected Savior. We ask these things through the powerful, the wonderful, complete name of Jesus, the name of Yeshua. Amen.